This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. In today's episode, we're rerunning Joe Pfeiffer's interview with Cece Connolly, president and CEO of the Alliance of Community Health Plans. Connolly, a longtime friend of HFMA and contributor of HFMA content, talks about risk and behavioral economics, as well as her views on consumerism and price transparency. After that interview, stick around for HFMA Chair Mike Allen's interview with Todd Gustine, President of the Technology Solutions Division at Optum360, our sponsor for this week. Well, I'm thrilled today to have Cece Connolly, who is the President and CEO of the Alliance for Community Health Plans, or ACHP, an organization that represents a number of provider-aligned nonprofit health plans that improve the affordability and outcomes in the healthcare system. CC has spent 25 years as a journalist, so we're reversing roles a little bit today, which is kind of fun, um, <laughs> including 13 years at the Washington Post covering national politics, healthcare, and national disasters. She's the co-author of Landmark Healthcare's New Healthcare Law and What It Means for All of Us, and previously worked at the McKinsey Center for Health Reform and PwC's Health Research Institute. She's also uh, a member of our Healthcare Leadership Council and is a very good friend of HFMA. So, Cece, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. So, Cece, I, I wonder if you could just start very broadly by describing ACHP and the nature of your members and the role that you see ACHP playing in our healthcare system today. Yes, I'd love to. Uh, so, as you were saying, ACHP, all of our members are nonprofit, provider-aligned, community-based, or regional health plans. And the reason that I emphasize each of those elements is that, as your listeners know well, that's a particular model in healthcare. It's often an integrated system, uh, or for some of our members, just these very close collaborations between the provider side and the plan side based on the ground in the community. We believe very strongly in that model, Joe. We think that it really does give everyone the opportunity to align much more around the patient and to get the incentives aligned as well. One of my big soapboxes these days is fee-for-service medicine and the misaligned, perverse incentives that we see so frequently there. I think that in a fragmented fee-for-service system, you have a lot of people doing things that may not be evidence-based, may not always be appropriate, may not be cost-effective for a whole host of reasons. But when you follow this model of integration or tight collaboration, we tend to see the alignment coming together uh, much more often. So plenty of the names that uh, your members are uh, aware of or even uh, at these places, uh, Geisinger, UPMC, Presbyterian, Kaiser Permanente, 
Health Alliance in Illinois, Priority Health up in Michigan, Security, which is part of Marshfield, Health Partners, Fallon in Massachusetts. You get the idea. Well, not only do I get the idea, Cece, but you mentioned Priority Health, which is part of Spectrum Health. And as you know, I spent 11 years at Spectrum Health before HFMA. And so I really do appreciate that model. You know, I used to say when I was at Spectrum Health, so many people toss around this term integrated healthcare system. And I used to say people aren't really, they don't really have an integrated healthcare system until you have the insurance component as part of that organization. So I I have firsthand knowledge and experience of the power of of what you're talking about there. So that's that's a great introduction to ACHP. Thank you. So let me jump into maybe the more healthcare specific stuff. What just generally speaking, what is the maybe a top trend that you're watching this year in the industry or things that you see are just top of mind that you'd like to comment on about what's going on in healthcare? Well, let me first start with maybe a little bit more of the dark and gloomy, which is that I have been discouraged that I'm not seeing the sense of urgency around movement to value Mm -hmm. that I think we detected a few years back seems to have lost some of the momentum. I think a part of that occurred when Tom Price came in as secretary of HHS and really started taking um, certain mandatory bundles and making them voluntary or optional or doing away with them. And uh, it seemed as if government kind of took its foot off of the gas pedal and kind of went from there. And so I worry when I talk to executives really almost all over the country kind of saying, well, you know, I'm going to see if I can make it to retirement before (laughs) then. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of a sentiment or they say, oh, yeah, you know, we're in risk based arrangements. And and then I ask, well, how much of your revenue is downside risk? And the answer is 5%. Sure. And, you know, Joe, that's not going to change the paradigm there. So that's a little bit of a a worry for me. You know, there are plenty of trends. I think an interesting one based on the old adage that demographics is destiny is around boomers aging into Medicare. And we're real bullish on Medicare Advantage. Uh, You know, that can be sort of the ultimate value-based health program. And so we are excited at not just the notion of more beneficiaries, but a lot more opportunities to get creative and innovate around care delivery models there, bringing in telemedicine, thinking about well-being, social determinants, et cetera. So that's a big kind of societal trend with some really important healthcare subtrends. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, all of those disruptors that are out there kind of nibbling at the edges Eventually, somebody's going to figure out whether it's Google or Apple or Walmart or, you know, pick your favorite. One of them is going to figure out how to really start taking business away from the legacy incumbents. And I'm constantly reminded of what Mark Harrison, the CEO at Intermountain, says, which is disrupt yourself or be disrupted. Well, that's that's so true. I have a quick comment on your on the on the value based comment, and then I want to get back to the disruptors. But I wish I had better data on this. I think this resonates with what you were saying. But it's almost like sometimes you see or hear people in an industry exaggerating and bragging up the level of revenues that are quote value based payments 
But if you peel back the onion, it's really fee for service with some slight, you know, incentive sitting on top. And I don't have, I don't have data on that, but I, I have seen, and, and we, we have some data that would suggest that the, the amount of revenue that is truly at risk in a health system is well under 5%. So that your comments resonate with me. And I, I sometimes feel like people wear that number as a badge of courage, even though the substance isn't there underneath it. Is that effectively what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. And again, you're the finance guy, not me, but <laughs> I've got a chuckle when, you know, many of these executives talk about being in risk arrangements and they're talking about receiving bonus payments. They, there's no risk in being eligible right. for extra dollars as far as right. I can see. That's a bonus yeah. program. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, you know, there is evidence to suggest, in fact, we did a study with Deloitte a couple years ago that actually made a direct correlation to the lack of movement in total cost of care related to the fact that there was very little downside risk at the time. And so I, I think if if there's not a downside risk environment, there's probably not enough incentive to really change you know, how care is delivered uh, and changing attitudes. And I, I, I think that's what you're saying. Talk a little bit about these disruptors and how that affects the payer community. For the CFOs of the insurance community, what are they afraid of in terms of disruptors? I think there are a couple ways that folks may be thinking about it. Uh, one of the more positive lenses is the opportunity for partnership. So when you think about some of the startups that are out there that really do have some neat technology or data capabilities or understanding around consumer engagement, those could be fantastic partners for health plans. We're now swimming in data, but the organizations that can really mine the data and help with predictive forecasting can be extremely valuable to a health plan that's trying to be very proactive with its membership. Mm -hmm. In a similar way, you know, sorting through all of the different apps and gadgets and wearables. There's there's so much of that out there on the market now. But I am a believer in behavioral economics. And so companies that are successful at these different nudges and strategies that can help all of us with so much of the lifestyle behavior elements that affect our health, that would be a very promising one. On the other hand, there are going to be a good number of startups that are basically going to just start peeling off the good risk. Mm -hmm. And this is something of an issue for plans. I think it's also very much an issue if you think about your typical hospital system. If somebody's peeling off those, for lack of a better word, simple cases and only leaving the hospital with emergency department, NICU, highest end neurosurgery, and they're taking all of the simpler cases, all of the testing, you're going to be left with a financial equation that I don't think works. So that's one of the reasons why we talk a lot about here the need to move away from just straight up hospital-based care and butts in beds and think much more about how do you deliver appropriate care and services in a community at the right place. And, and it's that kind of analysis 
that is really done effectively in, in an organization where the analysis starts at the premium dollar and flows all the way through as, as your members do, because that enables you to spread that premium dollar to the right setting as opposed to only trying to fill a hospital or, or an outpatient center on a fee-for-service basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. You know, th- this behavioral economics, at our thought leadership retreat last year, we had a, a behavioral economist speak and kind of opened my eyes to, to all that. And, and it's a combination of, of common sense and yet some science behind it. Are health plans formally engaging behavioral economists in their work, either through employment or through engagements to help think through those incentive models? I think it's still probably early days. Many of our members tend to be smaller and not have huge amounts of capital for, you know, those somewhat more experimental kind of endeavors. Mm-hmm. But in in modest ways, I think they are definitely incorporating some of the insights from behavioral economics when they think about how they design different products and how they market and sell them. Again, some of this fits in also with the predictive modeling about the behavior of, of certain customers that they have. But you know, one thing, and, and this goes back to your old shop, but I think it's one of our best examples is Priority Health part of Spectrum has had this price transparency tool for many years, longer than almost any other plan that we're familiar with. But they've gone through some iterations and real learnings around how you get uptake by customers including certain incentives like a little visa, you know, coupon card kind of thing to uh, get the participation. Yeah, that transparency attitude is throughout the whole Spectrum organization. In fact, I tell people that because we did it on the hospital side as well, and it, it correlated nicely with the health plan. And I tell people we were, we were doing transparency before transparency was cool. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right. I don't know if it's yet... Cool. But um, anyway, we were doing it. It's kind of fun. So shift gears a little bit here. You recently wrote a commentary piece on empowering patients and clinicians to make better decisions by providing them with better cost and quality data, coupled with access to updated evidence-based care protocols. And it struck me because that perspective aligns closely with HFMA's take on consumerism and price transparency. In fact, our price transparency report talks about the fact that it's more than just price, but quality data as well. But tell us a little bit about your perspective on empowering patients and what you were conveying in in your recent article. Part of the reason for the commentary was a bit of a concern, frankly, Joe, that the administration's uh, initial idea for just simply tossing out there into the public domain all negotiated rates of all providers and all plans and everyone did not seem to us to be something that would, first of all, empower patients or consumers because they would just be these massive databases or lists or whatever that I don't know who could possibly really make sense of any of that or to use all of that information to make really good personal choices around where to go for certain treatment, tests, therapies, etc. So what we wanted to do was try to illuminate for policymakers that there's probably a, a different, but we think maybe more effective approach 
that's very much transparency. Uh, many of, again, these tools that is going to be highly relevant to the individual. So price transparency tools that are also able to factor in, well, what health coverage do you have to begin with? What's in your policy? Where are you in your deductible? What kind of a copayment? Show four or five different facilities in the area uh, where you could go. How far is it from your home? And, and then what are their prices to you out of pocket? So making it really relevant to the consumer so that they would use it and be able to make wise choices. And then we firmly believe that the quality information has to come in. It's probably just going to take a little while longer just as these systems get built in a way that it's very user-friendly and very accurate. But, you know, you could certainly see that in Medicare Advantage where people can look at those star ratings. And we do a lot to encourage consumers, seniors, and their children who help them make choices to really help them understand, well, what the heck are these star ratings? Do they matter? Why do they matter? You know, what about me in particular if I'm looking for a plan that's good at controlling hypertension and diabetes or if I have certain medications that I want to take? So we're really big in getting those consumers engaged with highly relevant, timely, easy to access information. And the industry still has a ways to go, but that's kind of the vision that we've put out there. Yeah. And in fact, that's really interesting. When, when you talk about industry as a ways to go, I, well, first of all, that take on consumerism aligns really nicely with both our price transparency and patient financial communication bodies of work. And so we're aligned there. But we've been in this space a long time. And, and I get sometimes frustrated by what I perceive to be a lack of utilization of these tools. And mm. I don't know if you have data on utilization of consumerism, you know, transparency tools. Uh, do you think this is a, a natural change process? Or do you think that we're missing the mark as an industry? Or do you have any insights on just where we are with utilization of these transparency tools? I suspect it's a little bit of all of the above. Uh, the last time that we checked this, maybe several months ago, our research suggested that kind of industry-wide average is uptake by members around 2% which is why when we saw that priority health was up into double digits, 11, 12%, doesn't sound like much, but compared to two, you have an appreciation for it. So then I think though, looking at those kinds of numbers, you have to say to yourself, all right, well, how can we continue to improve and market these tools? We know that change is hard. We've got one member plan where their beneficiaries still like to pick up the telephone and call and ask someone for the information. Sure. And uh, this company's small enough that that's what they're doing while they transition over to an app. And it varies. So complete price transparency tools versus, for instance, some of the ones that we're seeing that are just on drugs. So Health Partners, Presbyterian, two of our members that have really started with a focus on your prescription medications. There tends to be more uptake there. Maybe people are a little more sensitized to drug pricing issues. So definitely behavior change. We know that takes time. Certainly the industry can do a better job at all of these tools. But I do also think that 
still when a lot of our healthcare is paid by a third party, you know, many of us are still insulated from those true costs. And if you're not paying out of your own pocketbook, you know, I, I use the comparison of if I'm going out to dinner at a restaurant with my husband, we may look at, you know, a glass of wine at one price point. But if you're on your expense account, well, right. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're going to spend a little differently. Yeah. Human nature, right? <laughs> I call it OPM, other people's money, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Cece, let me, let me, uh, that's, I, it's just fascinating about the consumerism and, and the use of the tools. And I also believe that we, when we fall short as an industry in terms of the quality of the tools, that's okay. Because if we put them out there and they get used and patients and, and members give us comments back, then, then we can improve them. And so I, I think uh, putting them out there and having them be used will help with that improvement. But the comments about other people's money, is interesting because it just doesn't seem to jive with the increase in patient pay expectations. The out of pocket deductibles, coinsurance levels, you know, maximums, all of those have gone up over the years. And so it just seems to me that they should be utilized at a greater extent. Even a, a priority at double digit is, is to me, seems so shockingly low because these are mm. significant amounts of money that people are expected to pay. But Maybe we just need to be patient. <laughs> so, Perhaps. Yeah. So let me shift gears one more time here. You know, it's pretty clear. I really like the model of, of your members with, the, and many of them have, you know, the insurance, the hospital and the physicians all within one organization. But outside of those that have those formal relationships uh, or equity-based relationships, more and more health insurance plans are forming jointly owned plans with providers in a different kind of a way. And, and I've read recently about one in in Minnesota with Alina and Aetna. What are your thoughts on those kind of models, uh, given that your members have always had these deep provider relationships? Well, we certainly believe in those partnerships. And we believe in it because we think that it is good for patients and can, you know, as we sort of started this conversation, get incentives aligned, you know, without commenting on any particular one, I do want folks to kind of scrutinize the new proposals with a little bit of a, a critical eye. So if some are just forming in name only, you're not going to truly get the benefits or some of the trends that we see in healthcare right now, which is just to be bigger, 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 um, there's a pretty good now body of academic research that is suggesting that the big behemoths are not necessarily resulting in savings. So I just think that we have to always, you know, kind of get under the hood a little bit and make certain that it's more than just packaging. That's a great perspective uh, because if the substance isn't there, then, uh, then the change isn't going to happen. Well, let me just wrap with one more kind of global question. If you could say one thing to our members uh, or maybe the industry at large about what we should do to either improve the industry performance or, or even change the negative rhetoric that we read about in terms of healthcare, what would you be? What would you say? Well, it would be my plea to stop with the finger pointing. It would be a plea that we really do get serious about 
delivering real value for healthcare dollars. You know, yesterday I was at a forum and it was around healthcare affordability and the question of is 18% GDP the right amount to spend on healthcare? And I said, you know, as a nation, I would think our health should be right at the top of our spending priority list. You know, I certainly hope it's uh, way above, you know, cars or sweaters. But I don't think the question is right now the right percent of GDP. I think the question is, are we getting our money's worth? And from the national and international data that I look at, I don't think that we are. And it is really time for this industry to come together and lead on that. It will involve some sacrifice across the board. It's going to involve much more ingenuity. We cannot wait for Washington. You know, Joe, sitting here in D.C., we're real stuck. (laughs) (laughs) And so I am just so desperate for the industry to lead the way forward on this. Well, you and I are completely in sync on that. I heard somebody in a meeting yesterday, one of these Washington insiders who's a, a lobbyist and very active with both the administrative and legislative side. And then he's probably been in, in D.C. for 25 years. He said it, he's never seen it. The, the relationship between the, the left and the right is vitriolic as it is today. So uh, you're right. The solutions aren't going to come from Washington. They're going to come from us. And we all we all got us to this point and we all need to, to solve it. So I just want to thank you for, for joining me today. I, I hope our listeners now know why we uh, asked you to serve on our Healthcare Leadership Council. You you bring this guidance and this this intelligence to us a couple times a year in that setting. And, uh, and now you've brought it to our members. So I just want to thank you for taking the time and, and sharing your insights with us today. Joe, right back at you. It's such a pleasure. Welcome. My name is Mike Allen, and I am the 2019-2020 HFMA National Chair. My chair's theme for this year is Dare You to Move, and I welcome you to the Dare You to Move podcast series. So what is Dare You to Move? At its core, Dare You to Move lives in the tension that exists between who you are and who you could be. Dare You to Move is all about making yourself uncomfortable, putting yourself in a bigger arena, in a bigger game. Dare You to Move is about doing hard and challenging things, pushing ourselves to find limits, and making ourselves uncomfortable to get better. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Todd Gustine, the President, Technology Solutions Division at Optum360. Welcome to the podcast, Todd. Thank you, Michael. really appreciate the opportunity to join you this afternoon, and I just love your theme. I find it aligns so closely and, and well with a common phrase you hear around Optum360, which is make it personal and, and really determine how best you can make movement yourself and really make change. That's really cool. And so that means we're going to have a lot to talk about today, and I'm looking forward to it. Optum360 is you know, part of Optum, a big, successful, focused um, organization. What lessons can you share you know, around innovation, around revenue cycle that um, our providers can learn from as well? There are certainly a lot of lessons to be learned of things that have worked well and a lot that have not worked well also. And I think all providers will certainly agree and understand the complexity of the environment that we work in and the number of providers or or vendors that work with the provider community to help drive efficiencies. And, you know, oftentimes 
multiple partners uh, coming together creates challenge in itself. Um, trying to solve a problem, we end up with you know more complexity or more more partners to try to uh, interact with and, and integrate solutions and so forth. And so it's that complexity that I would say is really one of the biggest innovation challenges that we've seen or that I've personally seen as we look at some of our approaches to how we're solving and how we're integrating. It's hard to really break down the barriers that exist around how we should interact as an industry. And doing that is is a challenge, I think, for everybody to say, if we're going to innovate in the following way, or we're going to change the following process by applying either this new approach or this new technology or, or whatever it might be, what does that do for the broader stakeholders that also interact in that same ecosystem? And how do we bring everybody on board in a way that is still rapid in terms of speed to market, but also will ultimately have the desired impact without creating more complexity with the goal of doing less and ending up with more? Well, if you can solve those problems, I think we'd all we'd all get ahead just a little <laughs> bit faster. So um, there's no no shortage of opportunities. I think I have a colleague who calls it a target-rich environment. So I think we have plenty plenty to go after there. So what's on the horizon for Technology Solutions Division at Optum360? What, what's coming next and what's the next hill you're going to take? You know, we really have looked at our business over the last 10 to 15 years now as a starting point to really getting to become the next really strategic partner for our clients. And when I say that, I mean, we have to look at our portfolio much more comprehensively. And that's the, the perspective we've been taking here in the last six to 12 months to say, you know, what is it that our clients are needing from us and how can we better serve them? Where are the true pain points and how do our solutions fit? So much less of a product strategy and individual products, but much more of a strategic partnership coming with solutions that address specific challenges in the industry. And while that may sound a bit basic, it's uh, something that the industry has not really been able to do. Um, I think the EMRs have certainly done it in certain ways, but from a RevCycle standpoint, there's still a lot of different applications that get uh, integrated or even partially integrated, and it really needs to come together more holistically. So we're we're certainly looking at that as well as, you know, how do we solve fundamentally the pain points in the industry? And I talked a little bit about payer provider um, and bringing common logic and common intelligence to both parties that there's an agreed upon approach to the way in which claims are, are processed and submitted and, and adjudicated and really sitting in the middle of, of bringing that intelligence and leveraging those, those common capabilities and ultimately eliminating that friction between certainly been the holy grail in terms of what we are trying to do for some time as an industry, but we're making real strides and have considerable proof points that we're going to continue to leverage and, and build into that portfolio approach. So we're very optimistic as we get into 2020 and, and beyond as to where we can take our clients and how we can better serve them. So what are your thoughts or what are Optum 360's thoughts about, you mentioned the friction, really solving the patient friction and the patient's interaction with us as a health system and our tools and our approaches and, and all of that. I mean, I think there's plenty of back office things to, to work on. We could, we'd work on those forever and there's some great things to work on there. But the patient side of it, I think, is, is really critical and wondered if that was also part of what you're going after. Yeah, the patient financial experience has, has been a cornerstone of, of Optum360 since we founded the business, really driving a strategy towards really that digital, at least that digital upfront experience that a 
a patient who's now being viewed more as a consumer of of healthcare and how they engage in with the healthcare system, you know, from early on from scheduling and even before scheduling of of selection, but into scheduling and then estimation and and really simplifying that experience and modernizing it so that there's stronger and better and more accurate results in terms of estimations and just driving that overall more retail-like experience, but also doing it in a way that simplifies what it is that they're getting in return. So, you know, a lot of our clients have really worked with us and asked us for, you know, better solutions around the opportunities for point of service collections and, and the way in which patients can pay and the methodologies in which they can pay. And really, again, focused more on most people today look at it as a, a, a more traditional retail experience of what they do when they interact with other areas of their life and asking themselves the question is, why can't healthcare be more simple? And is there a way for us to to bring that experience forward and simplify you know, the number of bills and EOBs and so forth that get uh, sent to clients and how do we really modernize that experience? So we spent a lot of our time on the front end and in both thinking around patient transparency and, and overall financial experience, as well as partnering with our provider clients to think about their, their digital approach to engaging with their clients and, and their patients. That's a great topic. And I think that's a great win for not only health systems, but obviously the patients and the communities we serve as um, you know, interacting with the healthcare system is just complex. And it's difficult and people are not feeling well typically when they're doing that. And so if organizations like Optum360 can help with that, I think that's a great win. And uh, HFMA is very much focused on the consumerism model as well and and uh, know that it's an important win for all of us. So thank you for working on that. Well, everybody, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Thank you to Todd Gustine from Optum360 sharing with all of us uh, some of the things that they are working on to move things forward and to make it a, a better experience, not only for those working inside of a health system, but the patients that we serve. Thank you for joining us on this Dare You to Move podcast series, and we'll talk to you soon. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks to Mary Mirabelli and Rick Gundling for their help with this production. And thank you to our chair, Mike Allen, and our sponsor, Optum360, for their interview this week. Finally, we always welcome your feedback and invite you to reach out to us with your questions and comments at podcast at hfma.org. Yeah, why can I say that?